Hi, I'm Terry Zabolski, pastor of Grace Community Church in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania. I'd like to thank you for listening to this week's message. I hope and trust that God's Word is a blessing to you as you live for Him each and every day. Well, today, as uh, you can tell by your handout sheet, uh, I'm preaching a message I've entitled The Whore of Hell. Uh, We are in this mini-series now, and we're dealing with uh, what is our purpose and mission as a church. Is it simply we ask the question to huddle on Sunday morning, and it's great to be together. I wish we could just be together all the time. Wouldn't it be great? But that's not why. It's not like a huddle on a 30-yard line. You know, we get together, and isn't it great? We're all on the same team, right? Same uniform. Sing a few songs and hear a few good words from God's Word. That's not the purpose of the church. We saw two weeks ago, we, first of all, are to be a worshiping people. As we worship, if you know Christ, your whole life, 24-7, ought to be a praise song and symphony unto the Lord as you effervesce with prayer and thanks uh, to Him. And then as we gather on Sunday morning and worship collectively, oh, it's great to do that. (laughs) That's an encouragement. But then we quickly scatter again, don't we? And then last week we saw, well, what, what is it we're doing here? You know, we think of businesses, they're doing something. Ford is making trucks, right? I guess they are. (laughs) Microsoft is making uh, system operational software. And, you know, you think of uh, different companies and what they're doing. U.S. Steel, are they still in business? They make steel. And Well, what's the church doing? What are we doing? What are we producing? Well, the Lord is absolutely clear in that. There's no fuzziness at all. The church is to make disciples. The Great Commission, go into all the world and make disciples. That's the command. A disciple becomes one by first hearing the gospel. Faith comes by hearing, hearing the word of God. And God opens their heart and saves them. That begins. And then a disciple is one, a genuine disciple, who not only professes Christ, but then follows him. That uh, is what the disciples did. Remember, they followed Jesus as he taught them for that three-year period of time. And that's what you are. You and I follow the Lord as we hear his word and, and, and strive to obey it. We're disciples. That's what we're doing. And we said uh, the key to doing that, really, uh, you and I can't go, most of us, to Cameroon. We're to go into all the world. Jim and Ramona are there today. Faith and I have gone and look to go again to Qatar. There's a continuing ministry there. But we're there but a short time. Familiars are up in Quebec and larges are down in Managua, Nicaragua, Nicaragua and in, in helping us fulfill that burden. But this is our Jerusalem. This is where we live. If you know, we live in the greater Harrisburg area. And God wants us to, it's a both and, but a primary thing here is we live here and make disciples. Well, how do we do that? We said, look through your relationships. Pray that God would burden you. Write their names down, two or three. Maybe it's work, or maybe it's on your basketball team. Maybe it's uh, where you do a lot of trading or selling. 
Uh, maybe it's uh, in your neighborhood, your family. Write their names down. I've written names down, and then I pray for them. I put them on my desk. It reminds me there. There are certain ones. I put them in my Bible, and I pray for them. I have a burden for them. And I'm thinking about how can I bridge the gospel to them. Um, remember, it's a link. You're a part of a long chain, each one of us. Don't be the last link. In other words, you and I must prayerfully win others to Christ. So there are other links that go on. Christ died 21 centuries ago, and there have been a continuation like a chain with links to this very day. And you and I are links to that if you know Christ. Don't let it end with you. I wouldn't want to be you at the judgment seat. You know, there when we're, we're, we're evaluated in our works. Why did it not continue past you, the Lord? Why weren't you fishing for men and women? I don't want to be that, and I'm sure you don't want to be that. Well, to help us then in a further thought, and in, in just reminding you, and you, you all know of this theme of heaven and hell, and last year we had a message on heaven and the wonder and the beauty and the glory of heaven, but today, to accentuate the need as to why should we make disciples anyway, people are lost. And hell is a horrible place. And you and I that know our Bible somewhat go like, well, we, I, I know that. I've heard that before, but we need to blow the dust off this truth and allow it to sink deeply into our heart. Now, there are a lot of messages that we feel warm and fuzzy about. Isn't it great? Preach on the love of God and the fruit of the Spirit and the wonder of heaven, and you go like, oh, isn't that great? Isn't that wonderful? I wish, I wish, bless, you, bless three of you, Pastor, would just go on forever and ever, you know, maybe four of you. <laughs> but I got to tell you, uh, in preaching about hell, I, you know, it's not, it, it's, it's, it's required of me. I mean, I have to preach the whole counsel of God, and for me to miss a major part like this, well, I have to give an account, you know, to declare the truth of the word from one end to the other. And you need to know it, and you need to be discipled in this. And you need to realize afresh that people that you sit next to, live next to, uh, work next to, play with next to, and all that, if they don't know Christ, they're lost. And the world in its satanic confusion as this nonsense in a post post-modernist uh, day where there's no truth. And isn't it true that all religions are the same? And isn't it true that everyone, if you're just sort of good, you get to heaven? That's the kind of mush that floats around in classrooms and universities and the culture and all that. But God has something wholly different to say than that. You see, if that's really true, that you could be a good Muslim and they just started Ramadan again. Uh, over this past weekend, and we'll go on for a month. It's absolutely satanic and blind. If it's true that if you were a faithful Muslim, you went to heaven, if it were true that you were a faithful Buddhist and you ended up going to heaven, then the reality is that Christ never needed to die. His death in all of that was in vain. If there is any other way for men and women, boys and girls, to be rescued from the penalty of sin, Christ came for naught. He suffered for naught. He bled and died for naught. There's only one way to be saved. Let God be true and every man a liar. 
Let God be true and let our current cultural isms uh, uh, be, be for vain and be lost, for they're wrong. Let God be true and every man a liar. For Jesus said, I am the door. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. Our culture may hate in their confusion an absolute mush way of thinking. It's a satanic uh, uh, fuzziness that enters into the culture of a people that turn their back from the word, that believe that all roads lead to heaven. They don't. Truth is not relative. It's absolute. It's not something in me, and you can have something different, and can't we all hug and both be right? Absolutely not. You can't live in the world that God created. It doesn't, it's, it doesn't work in the world he created. I'll tell you that. It doesn't. The more you go to pure science and the pure reality of what is, the more exacting you better be. You'd better be. When you think of even our own birth and in the conception in your, in your mother's womb, there had to be the 23 chromosomes, and they had to form perfectly in the DNA structure and, and all of that. Couldn't be like close. We're not pitching horseshoes here. It's exact in the world that God created. In the distance we are from the sun, it's exact. And, and the closer you get, one and one is two. It's not sort of two. And five and five is ten in the exact world. The further you get away from the, the, the mush of uh, social science and all that, so much of it, it's humanistic to the core. The more you get to the exact science, to the physics and the chemistry and the mathematics, to the real world that God has made, not to the isms, the more exacting it is. It's truth. It stands right. And that's the way it is. We're 93 million miles from the sun. You, we are much further away. Uh, we would all freeze to death. If we are any closer, we'd, we'd boil to death. But God set the boundaries and established all of that, and the moon and everything around us. And make no mistake about it, he is a God of truth. And he warns us, and, uh, and so on. The whore of hell. There are many, I remind you, there are many warnings in life. How many of you... Uh, went to school in those days, you're as old as I am or older, where you got under your desks at the aerial siren sound for the warning. How many of you did that? I did that. I, look at that. Look at it. Some of you have no idea what I'm talking about. In our elementary school, they actually had a bomb shelter. They took us down and showed us there in the crazy days after Nikita Khrushchev announced that the U.N., we will bury you. I remember seeing that. That guy looked like evil personified. Uh, sirens of warning, little kids under their desk, flashing lights, signals, words announcing danger, danger on the highway, danger, danger. Did you know, and of course many of you do, that the Bible also warns us of the danger of all people who die without Christ. There's danger. The danger is the lost will be instantly taken to hell and then finally thrown into the lake of fire forever. Forever. You say, is it really forever? Or it does it come to a point where the lost 
uh, are, are simply dissolved and gone. Well, all I can say to you is every, every time there is a parallelism, like in Matthew 25, where it talks about the redeemed and got the saved will be in heaven forever, it uses the same word in the Greek, the same verbiage to talk about the lost are lost forever. So as long as people will be in heaven forever is the same word that the lost will be lost forever. It's not my word. It's not my idea. I'm just a delivery guy here in delivering God's word, and I want to be faithful to the text. Well, it's true for us, everyone here. It's true for every person we meet. Every person you and I meet, don't be confused. It's not like everything else around us. Every man or woman, boy or girl, is immortal in this sense. They have a soul that will abide forever. And we're passing and going in one of two directions. According to Jesus, in your introduction, there is a heaven and there is a hell, and they are places, and can I say it? It's not on earth. Hell, people say, well, life is hell. Well, it can, it's hard. It, it, there are a lot of tears, heartache, brokenness. It's a post-Genesis 3 world. It's a fallen world. Stuff happens. It does. But this is not hell on earth. It isn't at all, by a long shot. As hard and as bad as the days may be, there's something far worse, and there is a place called hell. According to Jesus, there is such a place. And everyone goes to either one place or the other, but never to both. Never. You don't go to the one, and, and Aunt Tilly prays you out, and you go to the other. There's not a holding tank. The Bible never teaches anything of purgatory, ever. Take your concordance and look at it. Look at anything close to it. Never. Instantly. That's the joy of the redeemed. You close your eyes, breathe your last. You do not go into one moment of unconsciousness. You consciously, your soul. Listen, you are not your body. Remember that as our bodies are falling apart and we need some additional parts, right? You're not your body. I don't live in my hip there. I have a mechanical device there. It's working a little bit better, incidentally. Thank you for your prayers. I don't leave the house without the cane, but I'm doing a little better. Got my socks on for the second time in a month, or two months, today. And I was like giddy. I go like, it is the simple pleasures of life. I was telling Faith that this morning. And Rob, you were telling me the same thing. I'll spare what you were saying. In so far as the simple things. It is. Lost my thought there. Where were we? <laughs> All right. Body. What? Yeah, that's right. That's right. You're not your body, and instantly the redeemed go to be in the presence of the Lord. It is also true for the lost. Anyone of you here that know not Christ, if you die like that, instantly, you are taken to a place of utter torment. Oh, you'll say it now. It, nothing could be more fair than hell. Do you know that? I love C.S. Lewis, and some of you know his writings better than others. Nothing could be more fair than hell. Here's a way of thinking about it. Maybe you ever thought, because people say, what kind of a loving God would throw people into hell? People say that, and they'll use that objection. If you've talked to people at all, they'll say that, Right? 
What could be more fair than hell? Think about it this way, right? C.S. Lewis puts it this way, all God does in the end with people is to give them what they most want, including freedom from himself. What could be more fair than that, he writes? There are only two kinds of people in all the world. Those who say, thy will be done, Father, or those to whom God says in the end, all right, your will be done. You didn't want me at all. You didn't want my word. You didn't want my Savior, my Son, all your life. And so I'll give you what you want. And so God sounds like Romans 1, doesn't it? He gives us up. He gives the lost up to themselves. He lets them go. Romans 1. What a terrible thing that is. And Lewis is right. I think it's the ultimate monument. You think of the Washington Monument, the Lincoln Monument. It's the ultimate monument to free will. So it's different than God grabbing folks by the pants and throwing them in. He says, you didn't want me all your life. You could care less. You never wanted to gather with the God's people. You didn't want to do my word. You didn't want my Savior. So, okay, go. You got what you want. And you don't get me forever and ever in a place called the lake of fire. Wow. That's a different way of thinking about it, isn't it? Well, you should know that nobody spoke more about uh, uh, hell than Jesus. And I'm grateful for that. I mean, others could have by the inspiration of the Spirit. And others do speak on it. John does in the Apocalypse in, in the book of Revelation speak about hell. And Daniel and, and Daniel 12 speaks about it. But the, the, the great preponderance of it is uh, from the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, the Bible has, uh, in the New Testament, 46 verses in which Jesus is speaking about hell and the horror of hell. 46 verses. Someone has said that uh, he spoke far more about hell in warning men and women, boys and girls, than he ever did about the wonder and the glory of heaven. Wow. So let that center and let that uh, settle deeply into your heart when you think about this whole issue. Now, there are some that desire to take the gold out of heaven and the fire out of hell. And, of course, there are those that, that stand in pulpits and, and parade about as, uh, if, as if they're ministers and bishops and pastors and all the rest but they have lost their Bible, they kicked it out, they no longer believe it, and so, you know, everything, anything's up, my thought, your thought, they're all equal, that kind of nonsense, right? And so they end up saying, well, there's no gold in heaven, you know, hey, listen, gold, heaven is to be, going to be so glorious and so great, uh, uh, gold is the most precious thing we think of, it, and we're going to walk on it. I mean, we're going to think, it's like asphalt, Right? It's going to be so common, we're going to walk the streets of, of gold, and you're not going to reach down with your Swiss Army knife and say, wow, that's cool, I'm going to cut a, cut a hunk of it out and put it in my pocket. You won't do it. You, would, you don't do that with asphalt here. It's going to be so common. And of course, your eye can't even imagine all that God has planned for us in the glory of heaven. But some will take the gold out of heaven, and they do likewise with hell. They take the fire out of hell. One pastor was asked, do you believe in hell? And he said with kind of a cockeyed grin, of course I believe in hell. 
I just don't believe anyone's going to be there. Well, that man needed to, to go and read his Bible again. Because my Bible tells me in the words of the Lord, uh, there's going to be far more people in hell than the remnant that are saved in heaven. Wide and broad is the way, Matthew 7, that leads to destruction. All you have to be is born and live and ignore God and his wonderful son all your life and guaranteed. Don't even have to buy the ticket. You close your eyes in death and you will be in hell. My grandfather, my father told this story, never believed in Christ, was, uh, although was a faithful member of a certain church. When he died, my mother tells a story, he was behind on his pew rent. Some of you know what that is. They, they are so, so bad they didn't trust the free will gifts of God's people. That's the way God uh, expects his ministry to be uh, carried on and funded by God's people who have received so much we give our tithes and offering. They, they had far lost that and they charged rent for the seats. And they came by knocking on the door and said, hey, Eddie, before he died, uh, you know, he was in arrears on his pew, pew rental. Yeah, can you cough up the money and pay it? Well, you know, my mother shut the door in their face and said a few words. It's horrible. And as he lay there dying, he was cussing out my father. His hand was turning black. He was screaming, I'm burning up, I'm burning up, I'm going into hell. And I have no reason to doubt that that's, in fact, when my grandfather went, we have no hope that he was ever, ever, ever saved. Ever saved. Wow. Terrible. The fire of hell. The Bible's clear. The Bible is clear. Death seals a person's destination, and hell is horrible. You don't want to go there. This is why you and I, we need to be about the king's business. You know, we make a living, but we're ministers of the gospel. We do what we do daily, but we're ambassadors for Christ. We are to be witnesses here primarily, around the world, of course, who are prayers and giving and some going. But here, you and I are to be burdened for the lost and share the good news that Jesus saves. He rescues. He's the hero. He died in one's place. And men and women need to look to him to be saved, confess that they are a sinner and lost, and receive the free gift. That's what you and I are to be about the work of it during this short time of life in the business of making disciples. That's what we're to be doing. Well, three observations from our text of this with Lazarus. Rich man and Lazarus, the words of our Lord. Three observations from our Lord's words warning us, warning us about the horror of hell. The people we meet are lost, and they need a Savior, every one of them. The relationships around you, God has strategically and significantly placed them around you. And if you and I disobey and don't bear witness of the light, God will raise up someone else. He's calling out a people. If he has elected them and called them, he will redeem them. And you and I will be disciplined and suffer loss at the judgment if we don't love the Lord and love them enough to tell them the truth, to think of ways of bridging to these that are around us. And they are everywhere, aren't they? Well, the first observation is found in verses 
uh, chapter Luke 16, 19 to 21, Jesus tells us of two men who had very different lives. In verse 19 again, there was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen, and he lived in luxury every day. And at his gate um, was laid a beggar named Lazarus, who was covered with sores, longing, he's hungry, starving, to eat what fell from the rich man's table. And even the dogs came and licked his sores. What can we say about the first man? First of all, let me say this is not a parable. Some like to scoot this away and say, well, it's just a parable. It's not a parable. The parables are clear in the New Testament when Jesus teaches a parable. He's teaching a parable. Is to, the intent is to teach one single truth. And a parable means to throw alongside of, you know, he throws alongside something that is clearly known to teach that which is spiritual and may not be known. This is not a parable. What's never introduced is a parable. Uh, and not only that, you can check all the parables in the New Testament no one has ever has a personal proper name, Lazarus. And so this is maybe something that just happened, and the Lord knew about it and was recounting it to, to those that were hearing him, Lazarus. Now, this is not the Lazarus, Jesus' friend, who he raised from the dead. This is a different Lazarus, Lazarus and the rich man. Look at the rich man. Hey, he seems to have everything going for him, doesn't he? He's like most Americans. We go like, well, you know, I don't have what, oh, please, read history, and you'll discover we live like kings. Hot water, electricity. You know, they didn't have electricity until early 1900s. We just take it for granted. Automobiles, we jump in planes, we fly away. We, you know, education, learning, training, clothing. Our problem is we have too much. We love the gifts more than we love the giver of all the gifts. And that's our sinful problem more often than not. He's wealthy. He is. He's wealthy, number one. It's not a criticism itself uh, that he's wealthy, as the Bible mentions others who are wealthy. Wealth is not the problem. It's the love of money. Uh, Abraham was wealthy beyond imagination. Job was a wealthy, godly, righteous man uh, beyond imagination. David was wealthy. There are all kinds of wealthy uh, uh, examples of men and women in the Bible. Uh, it's, it, it is true. It's not that he, that he had wealth, this rich man, but it was that his wealth had him. You see the difference? You know, you can have something, but don't let it have you. Your bank accounts, all the things you like. You know, we have so much, don't we? We do. Don't let it have your heart. Keep a loose hand. Remember Job? Naked you came. I saw three of our babies, and they were absolutely naked. And naked you and I go. Stripped of everything except what we send on ahead. Right? He was wealthy. Well, what about that? His problem, his problem was it was a self-indulgent to the extreme excess. He's clothed in purple. He paraded about in that hot climate wearing a robe like he was a king. And he wore underwear, this linen, uh, beautiful cotton underwear from, don't you love Egyptian cotton? That's what he's wearing under this garment. He parades around like he's the Maha, right? He could easily see this. Uh, and he ate, boy, he ate like an Epicurean. Man, bring on the, 
the food. Oh, isn't it? He ate sumptuously every single day. He's probably bigger than an elephant, too, because of that. I don't think he ran five miles a day. Who knows? That's extra. Don't say it's in the text. He's a lover of money. It's a big problem in our day. You know, a father says to his son, make money. Make it honestly if you can. Make it dishonestly if you have to, but make money. That is, seems to be a moray of our, uh, of our day. Wow. Beware. Be careful. Well, he's a lover of money, and he used his wealth to gratify his own worldly pleasures, didn't he? Every time he went in and, in and out of his house, and it was a palatial house. How do I know it? Lazarus is laying at the gate, and the Greek word that's used here is a palatial or, ornamental gate. It was like a beautiful house, and the steps going down, and outside in the public area, there's Lazarus laying outside the front gate of this man's beautiful, beautiful palatial home. Every day he went in and out. He saw him. Or, you know, he looked away. He pretended he didn't see him. You know, that's how it is, isn't it? You know, it's ugly to see that. Open sores, he stunk. You know, his clothes were filthy. He glanced down, but he quickly flitted his eyes away because who likes to see such a sight? But worse, this rich man closed his heart. He shut the door of his heart. He had no compassion on this one who was laying right at his feet. And that was the problem. Well, look at the second man. The first man, uh, the rich man. Second, Lazarus. What about him? He's sick. He's uh, probably chronically sick. No medicine. He's disabled. He had to be carried by... His, uh, those that knew him about, he couldn't walk. He's hungry day and night. He's poor, he had nothing. And yet, uh, rather ironically, his name Lazarus means in the Greek, God has helped me. God has helped me. Now, that's a strange name. Actually, that was the Hebrew meaning of, uh, of Lazarus. God has helped. The contrast, you have to admit, couldn't be greater. It's, this end and this end. I mean, there's no middle class, if you will. It, it, it's enormous. For Lazarus uh, is such a strait, he cannot even help himself. Day after day, Lazarus hoped to get some leftovers, as the Lord paints this picture. Uh, leftovers, uh, crumbs that fell from the rich man's table. Maybe it was the servant who took the garbage out to the trash, and maybe some of the scraps would uh, fall to him. He yearned for that. He longed for it. He was hungry. He would eat almost anything, but nothing came his way. And yet the one person, that's the Lord's point, in all the world, the one person in all the world who was in the best place, the best position to be able to help him, absolutely and totally refused to do so. He shut his heart and his wallet and his time and opportunity to this man who desperately needed the love of God to be shown to him. Well, the Bible asks in 1 John three seventeen. I have it on your sheet, if anyone has this world's goods, and we do, and sees his brother, that's anyone near, in need, 
and yet closes his heart against him. How does God's love or the love of God abide in him? Now, the answer is rhetorical. It doesn't. The man is lost. And if you and I have no utter compassion for those in need around us, physically, spiritually, we have reason to examine our heart because we're probably still lost and dead in our own sins, according to the Word. We are to be generous, and the love of God is to flow through us. We are. I've always not known best how to, how to handle it. You know, you go into the inner cities, and I know there are professional beggars, and, uh, and those that, that will hound you sometime with their, they don't have a tin can. Well, some do, much anyway. We used to see it in Chicago, and sometimes you see it in Baltimore and other places. And, and for a long time, I, I went and I, and I took money, and I would give money to anyone that would ask. I, uh, um, and, and then in time, when Jonathan went to uh, Moody, uh, they, they would actually, in the early days of a student there, because they knew the students would live in the city, and, and they would see that and be asked very, very often how to handle that, um, they found out that many of those made thirty and forty thousand dollars. They were professional beggars. They knew how to work the people and all the rest. <clears throat> there may be some that were genuine, but there were things in the city, mission and meals and stuff, and so on. And and to help the students work through that. And so for a while, uh, you know, I took that and I said, ah, okay. Well, then I, I won't. I won't help at all. And then I discovered later that <clears throat> um, uh, that wasn't for me. You know, that wasn't for me. I, I, as the Lord helped me think through this thing, I discovered that they may have a need, they may be hoodwinking me and cheating me and lying me, and there may be a few that have need, and maybe I could buy them a hamburger for Neuristan in the city like that. But there was a greater issue there. And, and the Lord has finally brought this to my heart. The greater issue was the coldness of my own heart. And for me to shut my heart to someone who's asking for a sandwich, and they may go buy heroin or, or alcohol or, or something that they shouldn't be doing, but I don't know that. And that the greater issue was my own heart and my willingness to... To, uh, to help care for them. And so I, Faith and I have resolved, whenever we go into such environments, I'll always take some extra money, a dollar, that's a dollar, and give that to them. If I'm standing near something, a hot dog, I'll buy them a hot dog stand if they say they're hungry. Because the greater risk was my own heart and the tendency to get hard. I saw that, I felt that. Like, look the other way when, you know, and two or three, how many? There are not a thousand of them. I'm not going to be out a thousand bucks. But five people ask me, and maybe they're all cheating. And maybe they're, they're louses. Maybe they are. Maybe I'm contributing. But I give them to the Lord, and, you know, they know the lingo. So if you talk to them about the Lord, then they talk a whole gospel line. I've done that enough, you know? And if, and John, if they're near a, a hot dog stand, I'll buy them a sausage sandwich or a hot dog. But the greater need is here, because I don't want my own heart 
to get hard, saying, you're a cheat, you get what you deserve. And I don't know if you're there where I am, but that's where I am. And I'd rather take a pocket full of change or a few $1 bills and if six people ask me, okay? Because I'm afraid of my own heart to see someone as need and not do that. So that's just kind of a testimony. And they'll say, well, isn't he great? No, I'm not. Believe me. <laughs> I'm not. I need God's grace in my life every moment. But that's the way I work that out and maybe you other. Well, two men with very different lives. One had a need of everything. One needed nothing, or so he thought, as he lived a few days of life. There's a second observation of Jesus were warning us of the horror of hell, and it's found in verses 22 and 23. Now look at this. And the time came when the beggar died. They lived and they died. Have you ever read that word? They lived and they died. They lived and they died. It's appointed unto man wants to die. Dying you will die indeed. Listen, we all have an appointment with that. We all do. Verse 22, the time came. Man knows not his hour, but the time came when the beggar died. And the angels, God's sweet messengers, carried his soul. That's the living part of him. That's who he is. To Abraham's side in heaven, in glory, in paradise. And then second, the rich man also died. Isn't it interesting how he remains nameless? He died. Might have been a surprise to him. He might have been able to buy all kinds of medical care and tech and equipment. But the day came and he died. He died. And he was buried. And I would imagine it was a fantastic funeral for that wealthy man. They, made, they might have had a parade. They might have had the 21-gun salute. They might have had flags of flying as they carried his body to the place where it would remain for a future day when his soul was in a far different place, instantly in hell. Verse 23 begins that, in hell. Well, let's, let's look at uh, uh, our text. Jesus tells of two very different final destinations. Don't you notice that when you go to the uh, airport? Why do they call airports terminals? Ever think about that? If you're scared of flying, you probably think about it more than others. But they'll always ask you, what's your final destination? <laughs> final destination, heaven. What? We don't have flights going there today. Well, I don't know. You might. You, know? <laughs> you shake them up a little bit, you know? Final destination. Well, there are only two very, and they're very different, final destinations. And one man writes, there were two men, one on each side of the gate. They were at Lazarus' home. Both men died, and that changed everything, didn't it? It changed everything because they ended up on two different sides of eternity. And one has said, and you've heard me say it, death is the great equalizer. When death happens, the only thing that will ever matter is your relationship to Christ the Lord. That's it. God will not be impressed with your bank account, your personality, the things that you did, what you own, any of that. You leave it all behind, and so will I. All of it. There are no U-Hauls that ever follow any hearses. Ever. Ever. Uh, Mr. Uh, 
uh, uh, uh, Boyd, Boyd Myers died this week. Did you see that in the paper? Myers Funeral Home. Boyd had, did a lot of prep body preps of different ones through the years that, that I conducted their funerals. And I knew he retired and left the business to his son. And he was down. He had a chartered boat in Florida for the last 10 years, take people out fishing and all of that. And he enjoyed that. And I had occasion in hearses to talk to him about the gospel. And he claimed to know Christ. I trust that's true. But the local funeral director, graduate of Mechanicsburg High School, 70 years old, died this week. Yeah, last night they had his funeral right up the street. He died. And it changes everything. The big Chris Craft uh, boat he had down in Florida on the Gulf side, not his anymore. He left it all behind, as we all do, all of us. It's the great equalizer. I told you, I, when I carried my father out the front door of his beautiful home that he had worked so much for, at such an untimely time, he took nothing with him. He had laid down all his tools uh, the, the day before in his office. Little did he know, never to pick them up again. And when we as uh, widow and a couple of the kids went into his office with tears in our eyes to see how everything was left laid, that was it. He took nothing of that with him. Nobody does. Nobody. And what a shock to this wealthy man all of a sudden, to be on the same par with Lazarus, insofar as stripped of everything. Wow. It's the great equalizer. Look at A. Lazarus died in immediately, and that's the way it is. Absent from the body, present immediately with the Lord, was gathered by the, uh, by the angels uh, into their arms. And, 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 and we might say his name, Lazarus. God had helped him, had he? Had he not? He did. He must have earlier put his trust in the Lord, in the Lord but though the text never tells us. The Lord does not tell us that. But since Abraham is the father of all who believe, Romans 4.11, you have that, you can check that. He's the father of all who believe, all the faith. And there he is standing in glory, being comforted by Abraham, who is the father of the Jews. So he trusted the Lord as his Savior. The torment of his earthly body was over. He was ravaged, I imagine, for years. But now it's over, and now he's in heaven. He's blessed forever and ever without end. Wow, what a final destination that is, to be with the Lord, to finally receive a glorified body forever and ever. It is the clear teaching of the Word of God. It is the Lord Jesus who teaches us more than any of the rest. John Calvin writes of uh, the wonder of heaven and the horror of hell, that this picture, and I quote, represents the condition of future life in a way that you and I can understand it. Well, the rich man in 22b also died. He died, and in hell that says, instantly was. He lifts up his eyes. He's stripped of his wealth and possessions, and immediately he is in Hades, which uh, uh, is the precursor, Hades and hell to the lake of fire, and he is in anguish. 
He is in anguish and tormentation far beyond his worst nightmare. In other places in the, in the Bible, Jesus tells us that hell is, is a horrible place. It is a place of darkness. Sometimes buddies will say, well, my drinking buddies and I, we're all going to be in hell forever, and we're going to be having a drinking part. I got news for you. Uh, it's going to be an utter darkness and blackness. Read Matthew 25 on that. It's a place of torment forever and ever, and it never lets up. Matthew 10, 28. Matthew 24, 51. It's a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. Weeping. Weeping. Gnashing of teeth. Grind the pain is so excruciating. There's the grinding of the uh, of of teeth. It's horrible. In Mark uh, nine forty three, uh, we're told of a fire. Well, look at nine forty three. In Mark's gospel nine forty three. Back it up to 42. Just Let's read the account there. Jesus is speaking. If anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, that means if we are offensive to other believers and offend them and, and lead them into sin, it would be better for him to be thrown into the sea with a large millstone tied around his neck. That's instant death through drowning, right? If your hand causes you to sin. Now these are solemn words. Now, let me back up and say, he's, he's warning us that hell, Jesus is telling you, hell in the lake of fire is so horrible that if you have body parts, and he's speaking figuratively here, body parts that you, lead you and I to sin, we know it's not our hand or our foot that leads us, it's our soul, it's our mind, it's the depth of the choices we make. But if that leads us to sin and leads us in, away from God and his gospel, Jesus is saying in hyperbolic or hyperbole language, look at hell is so horrible, you're better off maiming yourself rather and going to heaven that way than going to hell. That's how horrible it is. If your hand causes you to sin, it's hyperbolic language, it's figurative, it's not literal, cut it off. It is better for you to enter, Jesus said, life maimed than two hands and go to hell where the fire never goes out. And if your foot causes you to sin, in other words, you go to places that, that uh, crush your soul and rob you of, of, the, of, of, of life and of eternal life and the hardness of sin that, and the exceeding sinfulness of sin that keeps you from the Savior. That's what he's saying. You're better off to uh, uh, cut, your, cut your foot off. It's better... For you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and to be thrown into hell. Not my opinion. These are the words of Jesus. They're somber. They're solemn. They're warning. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. For it's better for you to enter the kingdom of God, another way of saying heaven, with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell. Where? Notice, the worm does not die. And the fire is not quenched. 
Those are the words of the Lord. Wow. Horrible. The horribleness of hell. And if that weren't enough, we discover in Revelation 14, 11, write that down, and the smoke of their torment ascended up forever and ever. Wow. John MacArthur writes, no one in Scripture spoke more of judgment than did Jesus. He's right. Jesus spoke of sins that could not be forgiven. He spoke of the danger of losing one's soul forever, of spending eternity in the torments of hell, of existing forever in outer darkness, where there shall be weeping and the gnashing of teeth. Solomon Stoddard, the uh, Puritan, who was the grandfather of Jonathan Edward in New England, he put it this way, the fear of hell restrains men and women from sin. Hell is uh, compared to Sodom when it was completely on fire. You can read that in Revelation 21.8. Whatever the miseries of hell are, he writes, they will last forever and ever. It's no wonder then in one that sinners, and that's what all of us are by birth, are warned to flee the wrath that is to come. Flee, run, run from the wrath of God, the holy wrath of his justice that is to come. The point here is not that salvation depends on one's tax bracket, like he's rich and therefore he goes to hell He's poor, therefore he goes to heaven. It does not. Don't misread it. The real issue is our faith response to God and a response that uh, changes the way we live. It's like uh, James said in James 2, right? There is a faith, uh, uh, alone, a faith alone saves, but a faith that is alone does not save. You and I may say we have faith, but if it doesn't reach down and change the way we live, and we show our faith by our works, then we have a counterfeit faith. It's not real. It's not genuine. And we are still in our sin and lost and must be saved. Well, two very different men, two different lives, two different destinations, one the glory and bliss and forever in heaven and the glory and the beauty of that forever and the other in the horror of the lake of fire and hell and all of that forever. Well, third observation last, Jesus tells us of two desperate prayers that never get answered from hell. God is a designed prayer. He invites us to pray, to pray always. We are to do that. But here in our text, we discover very interesting that there are two requests that are never answered. Verse 24, we, uh, we, we see the first request. Let me read the, that and remind you of, of, the, uh, of that account. Uh, Father, and so he called to him, Father Abraham, this is the rich man in hell, have pity, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I'm in agony. Well, that's, uh, that's the first prayer request. And it, we might say it's a request for mercy for himself. Uh, the rich man is in such tormentation 
He is so uncomfortable. He is burning up, as it were, in the heat, in the fire of hell, as it were, or whatever it all is. Give me a drop of water, for I am in agony. How desperate the damned, the lost, are for mercy. But here's the truth. The day of mercy is over. The door has been shut. Death closes the door forever. That's why we must receive the Lord as our Savior while we are still alive. There's no second chance. Hell has no exits. There are no fire escapes. There are none. How with horror we watched the Twin Towers on 9-11. People fleeing for exits. A few were able to get away. Most of them perished in a horrible death in that terrible day that we shall never forget. Yet some did escape. They made it out. The fire escape down the steps and out. Hell will be a day of even greater calamity. But there are no escapes. None. Zero. Hear his request. Give me a drop of water. I am in agony. First thing, he's not asking for much. And do you notice he doesn't even ask, what would you pray for if you were in hell? Get me out of here. He doesn't even ask that. He doesn't. He asks for a drop of water. But now is a day of no mercy. Number two, if we live for this life, it's a reminder, that's all we will get. That's it. If you live for here and now and ignore the Savior and not receive Him and not live for Him, the life you get now, you only go around once, and that's it. So enjoy it. Because when it's soon gone, and it'll be gone soon, that's it. That's all. That's all. That's what the Bible teaches us. It will soon be over. Going, going, and almost gone. Number three, Lazarus could not bring him water. Notice that? No, he can't. Why? There's a boundary. There's a boundary. There's a wall of some sort. Seems to be some sort of transparent wall at that day that he could look up, he's down, that's why we say hell is down. He's looking up, he sees Abraham comforting Lazarus. He can't. Why? There is a boundary fixed that separates the two places, and it's fixed. It's not movable. There are no doorways between. In life, the two had lived practically next door to each other, right? And now they're separated forever. For no one, no one can escape from hell and escape to heaven. No one. It's now or never. Once we die, the decision we have made about Jesus Christ becomes irrevocable and irreversible. Therefore, what urgency, I say to you, as grace community given to this area by God's grace and timing, what urgency there should be in your life that you and I examine our relationships in our family, those that we circulate among, 
that we might urge them in so many words to flee the wrath that is certain to come. We must tell people about Christ. They will not hear unless you and I tell them. We are given the ministry of reconciliation. We are ambassadors for Christ. It is not you or I that are convincing him. Don't think we have to. We have to be faithful in sharing the gospel, scattering the seed of the good news of Jesus, that he forgives sinners like you and like me. Come and be saved. Come to the cross. It is God's Spirit who draws them. It's God's Spirit who convinces them of their sin and lostness. It's God's Spirit who produces new life. It's not you or I. Let's be busy with a sense of urgency about getting the wonderful news of the gospel out to those that God has placed us among. Well, the first request, denied not even a drop of water from the drinking fountain. The second request, verse 27, is similar. It's a request for mercy, not for himself, but for his five brothers who are now living. Send someone, send Lazarus to my brother's house so that what? They don't have to come here. Isn't it amazing? A few minutes in hell and the rich man becomes a missionary. Is that something? A few moments there, and all of a sudden, that which didn't even seem important to him became all important. And everything else that he made important in his life was not important. He became a missionary. Oh, please, send somebody to my brothers so that they don't join me here. Wow. His request denied denied. No way. Why? They already have the Bible. That's what he means. Moses and the prophets. New Testament hadn't been written quite, uh, quite yet. Would be in a few years. The finish of the canon, the Bible. They have the scriptures. Faith comes by hearing, hearing the word of God. And in fact, If something miraculous, like someone coming from the dead, would come and knock on their door, they're told in the words of the Lord, if they won't believe Moses and the prophet, if they won't believe the gospel, it doesn't matter if the dead rise, they'll say, no way, no way. Request denied. Wow. Well, C.S. Lewis tells that hell, as I mentioned, is really the greatest monument to human freedom. It says, if God says, look, you never wanted me in life, all right, you get what you want forever. God is the one who will run hell, too. It's created the lake of fire for Satan and his demons. And for those who couldn't be bothered, that reject the God that's clearly seen in creation. And those that hear the wonder of the gospel, no way, we won't have him. Crucify him. We could care less. Don't bother us. We want to do what we want. I'm God. Okay? You get what you want. That's what God is saying. And the door opens, and wide and broad is the way that leads to destruction. 
and many go that way. Wow. C.S. Lewis wrote a book called The Great Divorce. It's an amazing book. He was a genius of a writer. He's been dead now a few years. He came to Christ. He was an Anglican. And he writes in a genius way in his great divorce book. Somebody can still pick that up. He writes this way. And how creative. He says that one day there was a busload of people from hell who came to the outskirts of heaven. It takes a particular kind of genius to have that kind of thought. And there, as they arrive to the gates of heaven, they are urged to leave behind all the sins that have trapped them in hell. And then as he goes on to write, they all refused. They wouldn't part with them. And so God gave them up to what they wanted. And they got the lake of fire. Lessons for our life. What can we say? What can we say? First of all, there are only two final destinations. There are only two. You go to the airport, you may fly to New York or Orlando, L.A., somewhere. There are only two. If there were a hundred, I'd tell you. If all roads led there, I'd tell you. The Bible, with clear, absolute clarity, there's a heaven and there's a hell. That's it. Americans like options. We're not going down and buying ice cream. 38 options. I want bananas with raspberry and strawberries in. You can get it down there, maybe. But here there are only two. Only two. There's a heaven that will exceed your wildest imagination. The best is yet to come. For those in Christ. Did you die in faith? Did you die in Christ and Christos? You must. For instantly, if not, if, you, if, if you're here and you've never trusted Christ, your death will seal that. And it's just not old people that die. Oh, mostly, but not all. Not all. There's a hell to shun. Where will you be? Well, second... Hell is horrible. Hell is absolutely horrible, and that word doesn't even begin to describe the horror of it. Horrible. Horrible. It's for those who never wanted God. Couldn't be bothered. Manana, manana, another day. Look, he made you. He made you for himself. You're to live to glorify him and all that you did. He's given you gifts and abilities, health and strength to get out of bed, to serve him, to love him. Live for him. It's the joyful life. And if you will, heaven, I promise you, will be like a taste of uh, your uh, earth, will be like a taste of heaven on earth. It will. You'll have sorrow, you'll have tears, of course, but there will be times of great joy and blessedness as God carries you and I through as we serve him. It's the only life, it's the blessed life. Number three. Jesus is the only way to heaven. Only way. Let God be true in every man a liar, every university chair of every department that says to the contrary, in their snobbery and in their arrogance and pride and haughtiness. Oh, believe me, God is not pressed. You're going to get a few years of training, get a few letters after your name, and walk around and make such idiotic pontifications. Where's God? I don't see him. Like the cosmonaut, right? 
I've been in outer space. I've not seen God. All he had to do was step outside without a spacesuit. He instantly would have met God. He would have. Instantly. You want God? Jesus is the only way to be saved. If not, I remind you, his death was completely unnecessary. All the anguish, all the suffering, all of that. I am the door. You must go in through him alone. I'm the gate. It's narrow. You can't carry any good work through. It's his righteousness. And you know what? He gives it as a gift. It's a great gift. The righteousness that comes by faith. Wow. Number four, four. So believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved today. If you never have, if you've been unsure about that, be saved today and live for the Lord. And when you die, and if I'm still kicking around, and I have your funeral, okay, we'll rejoice. You graduated, right? We're still here. Don't live so as people are wondering, did he make it? I don't know. There wasn't much fruit. Don't live that way. Don't put your family, loved ones, through that. Live for the Lord so unabashedly that there's fruit all over your life. People you work with and live with, they know that you love the Lord. They could see Christ in you. There is no other thing. There really isn't. And it goes fast, doesn't it? And five and last... You are warned. There are all kinds of warnings in life. We're not talking air raid, siren, the commies are coming, the Russians are going to bomb us, other sirens. and all. You are warned. You are warned. Believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved today. Be delivered from the penalty of your sin. But now, more than that, because of last week in our mission, go make disciples. Come on, let's do that. Say, when's he going to stop harping on that? Never. Never. We are to make disciples and put it in contemporary words, right? To those that we love and related to. Flee the wrath that is is going to come and show them how only in Christ. Wow. The horror of hell. The screams of hell. The darkness of hell the longevity of hell, the rich men in agony looked up. Oh, may God help us. Not to be doing something that's sort of important, something that might be, uh, you know, on the side. May we stay focused on the mission, on what we're supposed to be doing, and give ourselves to it. Shall we do that? (laughs) 